This is the Pooh Ship Podcast, a raw look at the hospitality industry. What's happened to Pooh Shifters? Welcome to another episode of the Pooh Ship Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, this week's episode and last week's episode are kind of odd. Um, because if you've noticed, I've had to sort of put them back into context because these episodes I actually recorded while I was down in Vegas um, on vacation. I, I sat down with a couple of friends while I was down there. Obviously, I was going to record some episodes. But the big thing was is that it was pre-COVID. So we hadn't even... We didn't discuss it. We didn't have it in our radars. It really was out of the blue. Like, didn't even like register how aggressively um, harmful this... Uh, this pandemic would have been to the hospitality industry. So what I've had to do is I've gone back, and I, I think you would have realized this with the Dan, uh, Daniela Kublik episode from Silk Road Tees. I went back and asked some questions and sort of did a secondary follow-up in, uh, interview um, with the people I talked to post-COVID. So you're going to listen to an episode um, that is pre-COVID, not even on anyone's radar, and then you're also going to have a sort of uh, amendment, if you will, of a pre a post COVID and talking about how things have changed. And so Turbine Ellis has done a big one. So I've done a, a live stream with him and then, uh, in the interview as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode guys. Thank you very much for your support. I appreciate it immensely. Uh, enjoy the episode. I'll chat to you soon. Bye. There we go, buddy. Did you just throw me under the bus? No. <laughs> wow. Wow, should, is this the time when I tell people about how organized this Instagram Live was and all the data I got to sign up on it? Yeah, you might want to slow your roll, Hoss. What's hey, up? Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm good. Good. How's uh, things changed for you? Uh, I don't know. What what week? What's the day of the week? What I don't know. It's Wednesday day. I think it's Perfect. Wednesday. Perfect. I think it's Wednesday. Um, it's been interesting because I did a couple of episodes, like your episode, pre all this and i don't i don't think we even broached the subject when we were talking like there was no like we we weren't even chatting about this no this wasn't this wasn't i think on the 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 part of the national or the global conversation as far as this kind of impact and that's actually interesting because there's ripples of that now right like everyone remembers that lives in the u.s remembers like yeah there's some flu in china and a part of china i've never heard of back in December, January, you know, and, and now with the hospitality industry, we're facing some of that same, those, those bubbles or those ripples, because, you know, I don't know about you, but have you noticed some of your friends and family that aren't in our industry are like, yeah, you know, it's great. I'm spending time with the kids and I'm working from home and it's a little inconvenient. Yeah. It's like, I've had had a fair few conversations with non-industry people. um, And understanding the full impact like my wife obviously does but like her her friends and family not a fucking clue no not even like relatively no it's you know everyone's got a different frame of reference the whole planet's grieving and they're all in the different stages of grief and for some people you know this is it's like you want to get upset because our industry is going down in flames right now but what were we i mean were you and i like flying to china to make masks and to donate yeah. money you know it's if it does if it's not personal to you if you're not in it you don't see it that way so it's tough i am we're gonna have to do a few comparisons cause i've i've talked to a lot of people here in canada um about the government um the government outreach and stuff like that 
um, like oh, you mean like the you mean like the immediate assistance, financial assistance, and then yeah. national health care and yeah. all that stuff that a developed nation should have. Well, because we're a socialist country and everything. Right. Uh, <laughs> no socialism. Well, we don't want socialism. We don't. So well, we want it right now. Yeah. For a few <laughs> weeks, but then we don't want it again. Yeah. Like we every every employee, every person that's been laid off um, can apply, and it's pretty much easy. Everybody gets two thousand dollars every two weeks, but four grand a month. Four grand a month for. Um, for However four long it guaranteed. takes. Yeah. Um, and then. All businesses can apply for a forty thousand dollar loan with like ten thousand dollars forgiveness and like interest free for a year. So we've got a, we've got a, I think we've got a lot of good stimulus coming down the right thing. But for us, I'm sure it's the same in the U.S. Um, the government has no fucking idea about how big the hospitality industry is and the impact it has being shut down. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Well, and that's something that, you know, the underbelly of our industry has been exposed and we see all of the, you know, all the things we didn't plan for, think about. And and there's a lot of conversation in, on different levels of this from the bartenders inside of the COVID industry support groups, and the alliances on Facebook with 17 and 20 and 30,000 people to the, the leaders of our industry who have platforms like Tom Calicchio and Naomi and Portland and what they're doing with the independent restaurant coalition and all the way to, um, to uh, Jose Andreas and, you know, think food group and what they're doing and they're reaching out and trying to help legislate. Um, and it's there, but you know, we weren't prepared for this. It's just, if we're, if we're just going to be honest about this, the, the two hardest things to come to bear or come to grips with are, the government, we don't have a voice in the government, not a big enough one. You know, Arnie Sorensen, the CEO for Marriott, is sitting down with the CEO of Hyatt and everyone else in the White House talking about a bailout for the hotels, which is a, a start. It's great. That's, that's in our hospitality, you know, circle. But we don't have anyone that can get that kind of audience and, and, and make our case even, let alone impact any actual immediate stimulus that's targeted for this industry of, in our country, of uh, between 12 and 14 million workers that produces over $900 billion of revenue to the gross domestic product every year that is not there now. Yeah. You know, so before we're bail bailing out cruise ships and banks and Wall Street, yeah. perhaps it's, it's, you know, it makes sense to figure out how to bail out this industry that, that is uh, sewn into the fabric of, of both of our countries. Has, uh, have you had a whole bunch of contracts and stuff like defer or cancel altogether? Oh, man. Everyone's on net 60 like that. I've got, you don't want to know the dollar number of unpaid invoices. And yeah, you know, my revenue stream stream just about tanked completely. The only thing saving it is that the development pipeline, because I'm in the design space quite a bit, the development pipeline for the large companies hasn't stopped yet. Yeah. But it's going to if, if things don't turn around fast, really fast. And, and even if it doesn't stop completely, you know, it, it's, it's always this way. When the economy turns down, you don't go looking for a consultant. You go to the GM of the restaurant and go, okay, you're now our design guy. You're now our <laughs> HR department. I need you out there at table 13. Do some, get, restock the ramekins of blue cheese. Yeah. And how well do you know any accounting software? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you, have you heard of this thing called BIM? Do you know what AutoCAD is? Are you familiar with MEP? Yeah. So. Actually, speaking about that, have you um, 
I've, I've seen, I've, I've tried, been talking to a few of the kids and stuff about pivoting and sort of learn new skills. There's so much stuff out there. And I'm even, after talking to you, I'm even like going deep into like learning AutoCAD further and further and further. Yeah. Um, do you see a lot of bartenders? I, I'm sure you're getting a laugh out of it because I've seen enough posts. Are you getting a good laugh that every time you're on Instagram or Facebook, someone's going live to do another cocktail video on how to make a Negroni? You know, I, I, I hear you. I kind of don't have that perspective. Only I get it. I get all the perspective because everyone's just trying and that's not the intention is there, right? So yeah. everyone's like, I need for here's the three things everybody needs right now, right? Everyone needs a sense of purpose or they're going to lose their minds. Secondly, people want connection because we lost it. And three, most of us really want to help. So yeah. when you put those three things together, what you end up with is you end up with a mob mentality of ready, fire, aim. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. And you have a lot of people that are duplicating efforts, but they're doing it for the right reasons. And yeah. that will start to sort itself out because we know the truth. <laughs> uh, you know, let's do, a, let's, do a, let's do a counter and see how many people that started doing a daily whatever yeah. two weeks ago are doing it in another two weeks. So it'll take care of itself. But the, the helpers... Um, the, even the bartender that does an Instagram live, like, you know, Pagash doing his and Julio Cabrera doing his yeah. Trova and DDO and Katie and everyone that's doing one. It's, if it's helping one person get through the day, including them, is it the only thing I worry about is taking up bandwidth. That's it. If you're not taking up bandwidth, you know, I worry about that right now. Like how important is this conversation? I know that's a terrible question to ask is that. <laughs> As a Thanks, guest, but, but no, but like, I don't want to take people attention or resources away from the people that are actually really doing the help. So that's kind of every day I wake up when I work on that, the dashboard, which I'm sure we'll talk about that's in my mind is, is this really helping? Or is this just me going, look, I did a thing and it looks like it helps. And that makes me feel good. And that's the question I think everyone needs to ask themselves before you rush out to do that Instagram live or Facebook live, Instagram, whatever it is, zoom before you rush out and do it, spend seven minutes Googling and checking your network and seeing if it's already being done 52 times. Yeah. And maybe you can collaborate, collaborate instead of duplicate. And you can be a guest instead of a host. I don't know that we need 37,000 cocktail shows on zoom right now, but it would be great to have 20, 50, 60 of them that are all different and helping yeah. each other. So what I what I started doing is that when this all sort of happened, I start with all the information that was out there, especially here in Canada on social media. I started doing a podcast a day, and so I sit down. I sat down with like Able BC, which is our liquor legislation branch here. Talked about what legislation's coming down the pipeline. Our restaurant and food service association president sat down with him. Um, so every day I'm putting out uh, content for. Um, like speakers who like I, today was a chef owner in Vancouver and he was just really, really fucking honest about like how, how much shit has hit the fan and how unenjoyable this is right now. And so um, I want to try and give a perspective on people so that they can understand, like you're not alone on this. Like people is, everybody's hurting. Um, but how is, uh, I, I, the wife showed me a live stream of the, uh, the main drag in Vegas, how, how I feel like Vegas, if anywhere is going to get hit even harder than anywhere else, is probably going to be Vegas. How is it there? Uh, you know, it, it's rough, but we've been through this here a couple of times recently. And 
Um, I think it's important also to just start by saying that it's rough everywhere for everyone. And it's definitely not a, a competition to see who's having the hardest time. But, but you bring up a good point. You know, we, we went through this in 08 with the, the, the bubble, the real estate bubble crash here. We also went through it in 9-11. And that was something that, you know, it, it's, I, it might still be too soon to talk about that. But um, my girlfriend grew up in New York. She lived in Brooklyn and Jersey. You know, I'm from upstate New York. I know the city well. There's nobody, nobody would ever think that to take away from the pain and the, 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 just the destruction that happened in New York. But in that conversation, the next, you know, three days later, this city shut down. When there's no flights coming in to Vegas, this, the entire city shuts down. We have a 53% of our population is, is tied to hospitality, tourism, and the support services for it. And frankly, most of the rest of the industry comes from businesses that exist to support the workers who are in those industries. We don't have manufacturing. We don't have tech IT. We don't have you know large corporate uh, corporations that are based here. So, on the in the bad sense, um, I think it's it, it's crushed our state. Absolutely decimated it. You can't work from home if you're a valet. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can try. I don't know how many times you can park your wife's car, but you know, you can try and see if she tips you. But you can't work from home in most of these businesses, and so the income's lost. And most of these companies, some of the companies are stepping up, and they're great. Wynn stepped up and said, we got you, and they're paying their employees. Oh, Hakkasan, wow. Hakkasan Group paid for a few weeks, and there's benefits that are still existing. Um, and so there's, there's effort, but we're a, we're a city in the middle of the desert that's pretty much shut down. On the positive side, it made it a lot easier for our, our governor, who's doing an amazing job, Governor Sisolak, to get the word out to stay at home because when the Las Vegas Strip closed – yeah. The 24-hour casinos that have never, ever closed, never in totality once closed, the city got the message like, oh, okay, we're shut down. Stay yeah. home. You know, there's why, why be out? And, and so that helped. But, you know, I, I worry about Orlando when we talk about tourism and hospitality-based economies. I worry about New Orleans. And, I mean, how many times are they going to get punched in the gut and knocked down from, from disasters? and still keep getting back up and fighting. They're the strongest yeah. hospitality city in the world. They've been through everything, you know? I worry about Hawaii, and I worry about all my brothers and sisters all over the world, and, and man, if I could just throw my arms around and pick them all up and help them, I would, but I can't. So instead, I built this little dashboard, right? So that's a good, that's a good segue. Um, Thank you. Let, let, it's a fantastic segue. You should, you should you should be hosting you should be hosting live videos on Instagram. I don't want um, Conan to get jealous of my hair here. <laughs> he might kind of have an issue. That's why I wear a hat. Um, hey, so, aren't there supposed to be like hearts and thumbs if people like stuff? Are we yeah, tanking yeah. right now? Thank, no, we're not tanking. Don't you stress? Okay, um, I'm just curious. Somebody give so, me a heart. Let me see it's working. Give me a heart, Monique. <laughs> give me a heart. I don't think the hearts are. Oh, there's a heart. Hey. Oh, there's a yellow one. Oh my God, they're they're like Skittles. They're coming up in every color. Sweet. There you go. Okay, just uh, check. So, hospitality, the hospitality relief uh, dashboard. What sort of obviously what obviously is an easy reason why you pushed it, but what sort of uh, what would you wake up and go? You know what? I, this is needed. Uh, it, I, yeah. I just I I immediately thought, what can I do to help? You know, Stella and I are both, we both have asthma, um, and we knew that we needed to be home. She had a coworker test positive very early on, so we had wow. to self-quarantine anyway. And I'm sitting here going, okay, great. I can't run out and help, 
what can I do from home? What's my skill set? And I just went through my normal like experience design UX UI process, which is what 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 is my skill set? What is my platform? What's out there and what's not out there? And how can I help without getting in the way, without diverting attention or resources, without making noise, you know, and just actually do something. And the thing that occurred to me, because I'm a massive reader and researcher uh, and thinker, I don't say I'm smart, but I, I do like to try to use the brain and think every day. Like I actually schedule time just to think. And as I looked, what I noticed was everywhere I went, COVID resource pages were popping up. They all had the same 11 links on them. Yeah. You know, they all had Southern Smoke and the new RERF and uh, Greg Hill and all the different foundations. And certainly that's a start. But then I started to realize we're just repeating efforts. So I said, well, someone's got to put this all together. So I started looking for it. And at that point, and I don't think anyone else has, I know Eater's done a great job of putting together city resources and keeping them updated. But most people put up a page, they list 10, 12 links, and they're done with it because they have to run their own businesses. Well, lucky for me, my business tanked. So I had all the time of the world. So now I just uh, took my 20-year-old terrible HTML coding skills and my old uh, art director advertising you know, skills and just said, can I think about the person in need right now and what do they want? What do they need? And how can I make it the easiest for them to get it? So I was like, I don't know that a giant never end endlessly scrolling list is necessarily how I would search for information. If I had a choice, I'd probably go, well, I'm in Ohio or I'm in Utah. I need relief for Utah. Now, boom, hit the state of Utah. Bam. There's the links, check them out. And hopefully that, gives you some information or a resource you didn't know about or that you can share with other people. And how has it been responded to? I've, I've seen tons of articles and everything about it and people seem to be raving about it. Um, well, I mean, what I focus on is, is it, is it, you, is it, what's the footprint, right? What's the, the, if we have this, what's the crisis or the hospitality relief footprint? I'm trying to keep it really small. So it's not taking a dollar away from any bartender, cook, dishwasher, server, anyone in our industry, you know, from housekeeping, all valet, all of it from getting a dollar of relief. I don't want money and, and I, I won't take it. There's been a few generous offers, but it needs to go right to the funds that exist. So that's important. And I think I'm doing a pretty decent job of, of staying focused on that. Um, the traffic if it matters, if, as it's helping, it's certainly growing. Uh, about 50% of the traffic comes from people who come back. 50% every day is new. About, um, you know, it's three weeks old, but there's about 8,000 unique visitors a week. So there's there's people going to it. Um, we did no media push. It was just social media until um, Hanya. You know Hanya Woodman? Mm -hmm. So we've been friends for 20 years, and she just, you know, just, <laughs> I was like, hey, can you help? And now I'm going, hey, Hanya, okay, that's good. We're good for this week. <laughs> she, she helps so much. And there's articles coming out in the Las Vegas RJ. And Amanda Schuster did one on the al alcohol uh, professor. And uh, it, it's Neepor, Bennett Neepor is putting one together. And Joe Carbonara at Food Service Equipment Design. And then I've talked with a few other friends who are setting me up interviews with like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And that's great as long as the message is helping and important. I don't care yeah. about this thing being known unless it's helping. And I, I honestly don't have the feedback. I don't know. I obviously it's not putting my site isn't putting a dollar in anyone's pocket or a meal on their table. 
I do hope that in the three weeks, it's helped a couple people connect with resources or share resources that they thought someone else could use. And, 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 and so I'm also thinking every day, and by the way, for anyone wondering, it's uh, honey is the best, it, it, Greg. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's barmagic.com backslash relief or just barmagic.com in case you're like, what is this thing and where is it? Um, but what I, I really hope it accomplishes is it, it starts to be more crowdsourced. There's a button right on it, add to the map. And some people are sending me, emailing me, texting me links. And I'm like, thanks. And then I'm like, great. There's, you know, more coding and manual entry. It's automated right now. Tony, uh, Tony McGuire donated his dev skills to help automate it so that if you hit that red button, add to the map, and you fill out a five, 10 second form, paste the URL, the name, what state, boom, it auto populates. And within 24 hours, it's up on that map. So, wow. Well, so on a uh, on a professional level, uh, can you see a light at the end of the tunnel for the industry? No, uh, I don't, and that's honest. What I do see is I see a lot of people picking up shovels and digging and building that tunnel that know that there will be a light. There's no light. This isn't. We've never had a crisis like this. This is the, the estimates right now are scary, and they're they might they might be inflated a little bit. We don't know. There's no hard data, but I've read them all, and they range anywhere from we know that. In the U.S., at least, 30,000 restaurants have already closed. Three million hospitality employees, which is one-fifth of the entire workforce, immediately, in the first three weeks of March, out of a job. Gone. Done. The estimates I've read, and I don't know what you've seen, range anywhere from 100,000 up to as much as 75% of our industry will not recover from this, will not reopen. Yeah. Now, I don't know where that number lies, and it doesn't matter. The fact that it's more than... 4,000 restaurants or any restaurants that are closed forever, bars, nightclubs, cafes, coffee shops, hotels, all of it uh, are done. That's it. That's, and there's no, you know, all the efforts we're all doing, they help. They give hope and they boost morale and they take their little tiny, tiny, tiny little band-aids, but our arteries have been exposed and we're bleeding out. So, you know, a little band-aid, a cotton swab and a band-aid isn't going to save us. And it doesn't look like our government's going to. I don't know. Can you give Trudeau a quick call and see if he's got an extra $4 trillion he can throw towards our industry, maybe? Do you think it's time for the industry to be, um, to show its, I, I know it's being shown its vulnerable side, but do you think it's time? Like, I've had a conversation with a couple of operators about um, losing the, the bravado and the, the ego that sometimes goes along with owning a restaurant or a bar or nightclub and stuff and sort of showing our vulnerability because I think consumerism um they've always thought that because we always put a brave face on we always go we're good we're fine we got we're this good. we got we're this, this. Yeah. do you think it's time for us to go you know what we've we we, we, st we struggle in a broken industry yeah we don't and we don't got this we don't yeah. got this yep. and we, we're not, we, 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 not the way not the way we're used to you know yeah. and that's like a conversation to frame it for everyone in our industry i say all the time is like look the one good thing is we're certainly the best suited industry i can think of outside of healthcare and first responders to handle stress i mean that we all grab People that thrive under stress are who come into the industry. You know, like, woohoo, we're in the weeds. Well, it's not woohoo, we're in the weeds anymore. It's, oh, shit, like, we're in the weeds, and I don't see an end to these. But, yeah, I think this was a very humbling experience for all of us. And I, I can't imagine there's a single hospitality operations manager, director, VP, or owner who isn't thinking, wow, we got to rethink our model. We have to we got to figure this out. I mean, 
I, I've had those same heartbreaking conversations with so many of my friends that own and operate independent bars and restaurants about them having to lay off their staff. And, you know, um, it, it, all you hear are these stories that they're heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time, right? You know, we have a friend here who, who's the general manager of one of the most famous old dive bar cocktail beer bars downtown. Uh, and she, the whole, pretty much the whole staff let go. But since she's like director of ops and GM and runs the office, she's, they kept her on salary. So she turned around and cut her salary up and she gives it out to her, her laid off staff, you know, and that's, those are the stories that warm your heart and keep you going. But how long can she support everyone like that? And is the business even going to last? So, yeah, I think we need to rethink our our industry and, and, and a couple of fronts. I think there's three things everyone can focus on if any of them, you know, are, are things that excite them. Number one is, is obviously, is we need a, we need a seat at the table in, in, the, in our government, maybe yours too. I know Mark Shetler in Louisiana is working very hard on developing resources for that, and he's been in that space for a long time. So that's great, and we're coordinating efforts. I'm trying to coordinate with anyone who's doing anything and see how I can help get their word out or help them connect them to people that can help them. So that's legislation's one. Two, we've got to figure out the whole benefits and pay model of this industry, this two bucks an hour, or even if it's, mm-hmm. you know, people are like, oh, you're in Vegas and your friends make $15 an hour. I'm like, uh-huh, before their tips are taken out, just like you. And the IRS actually tips Vegas employees on a set tipping scale that's like massive. So they end up with the same, if they're lucky, three or four bucks an hour, just like everyone else, if, if they get a paycheck at all. You know, healthcare, that's, that's not just a U.S. national population issue it's a hospitality issue and paid sick leave and then finally and this is the one that probably you know i think we're ready to start having this conversation or maybe once that that unemployment benefits kick in but i don't i understand it and i'm not necessarily saying in my life as a bartender i was any different but i've had a lot of people that aren't in our industry say to me it's hard to hear but they're right they're like how if you lost your job in the third week of april do you not have savings to pay for your rent in April. And I try to explain them like, well, first of all, in my country, almost half this country lives paycheck to paycheck. And in my industry, there's a lot of people that have no choice raising kids and single moms and families and two and three jobs. They're going day to day. And sure, they're having a, a takeout pizza or they're going out for a drink after work or whatever, so they can be human and live. But we don't look at how many bar owners, I'll talk to Sean Finter and, and yourself, how many bar owners do you know, independent, that have months of cash flow reserves for, for this kind of thing? You're paying, the money you get this week is paying the bills from last week. Yeah. You're just, everyone's like, oh, I want to own a restaurant. When I get that call, the first question I always ask is, why? Cause it, and if the answer is because I want to make money, I go, okay, this call's about over, but I'm going to advise you instead to go open up a beanie baby shop in the mall like if you want to make money go go start a pokemon business there's no money there's no margins in this industry you don't get into this industry to make money you get in this because you love taking care of people and you just love food and beverage and you love the energy and the, the you know it's it's it's, a, it's addictive so i think it's time to start having that conversation about you know even if you're 19 years old and you're you know you're, you're working at chili's or you're at a fancy cocktail bar and you're 22 or you're 40 and you haven't figured it out yet, you got to start doing some financial planning, just some basic budgeting, you know, a basic budget. Cause every time I've done it for a friend or a family member, especially a couple of my younger friends, you know, they're like, no, nah, I'm, you know, I, I'm good. I spend this, I spend that. There's my rent. There's my, you know, there's my car payment. I'm like, okay, so what about your 
takeout? What about your drinks? What about your subscriptions to Netflix? Well, that's that, that, it's 10 bucks a month. I'm going to add it up. They're like, oh my God, I'm spending 30% of my income on takeout food. Yeah, that's not sustainable. So at some point we have to start realizing that we're going to have to pull ourselves out of this, each one of us, and start being, you know, more like our grandparents. You know, Sean, I, I, I was, uh, I was broiling some chicken the other day that we defrosted in our like chest freezer and I had it on a piece of tin foil and I got done and it was all done. And I looked at the tin foil and I picked it up and I was about to go to the recycling and I went, eh, it's got another side to it. I can wash that <laughs> off. That's all right. And now I get my grandparents who saved every jar, Folgers coffee can, yeah. piece of tin foil. My grandmother's victory garden, you know, um, Dom out in, uh, out in Oakland has started a victory garden. And uh, he's, you know, we've got, my girlfriend started growing green onions because we had some. We're like, what else can we save the, the rinds or the stubs of and make our own food? You know, um, that, that's kind of a piece of it too, is how can we not put ourselves in this position again, each one of us right now and our entire industry? Well, I think that's a really good update because this is going to be a, a nice long episode because I'm splicing, going to splice this in with the episode we did in Vegas. So I want to show people the pre and post, like the conversation we had and the conversation that's changing the game now. Yeah. Um, so I really appreciate you your get, time. Make sure you get this. Oh, no, I trust get... me. That's, that's going to that's gonna be on YouTube. Don't you stress about that. I'm not, man. I'm happy just to have hair at this age. I don't know too many <laughs> other 85-year-olds that have this much hair. Look at that. <laughs> well, thanks for your time, man. I really appreciate it. I always love hanging out with you. Same, man. Same. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, if you could just push people to take a look at least, at barmagic.com backslash relief. Share it on social media, send out an email, hit that add to map button and just help every help me not get in the way, but helping other people find information. Maybe it's doing a tiny little thing. I don't know, can I get a heart or a thumbs up or like an emoji of some kind if that's <laughs> happening? It's just so fascinating will, to me. Come on, give us give us a heart. Joby, Jerry, give us a heart. <laughs> He'll he'll give he'll throw you a heart up. There you go. Boom. There's a heart for you, buddy. Hey buddy, I thank you very much. I'll chat to you soon. Thanks, man. Canada's on the map. I didn't forget about my brothers to the north and my sisters. I will double I'll I'll check on that and I'll uh, link it all up. Thank you, brother. Thanks, buddy. Bye. Keep the faith. All right. Stay safe. Bye. You too, bye. So this is a little jump in in between recordings here, guys. Uh so you just listened to Tobin talk about the hospital relief uh uh, hospital relief dashboard, um, his uh, hospitality charity organization sort of amalgamation, uh, as well as what's happening post-COVID for him business-wise. Now we're going to slide into the uh, episode I did with him in Vegas. It's only audio, but um, there's a really a, a great amount of stuff. And Tobin has influenced me and my career excessively over the years. Um, and I really appreciate all the work that he's done Um on the design front, the consulting front, the the, the evolution from flare flare tender to bartender and consultant and stuff. So for me, uh, he is one of my like idols, I suppose. And I hope you enjoy this episode, the the post and the pre. I'm trying to give some context to what happened with uh, all these people after COVID hit, and I hope that I'm sort of getting that across. So hope you enjoy the episode, guys. Thanks for the support, and I'll see you soon. Bye. The podcast is about my gearings towards like young bartenders understanding the amount of work it takes a lot of the times to get to places where 
we're at, I'm sure you see it in the industry now. Like, I don't want to say millennials and all that sort of crap, but like, with the social media and all that sort of stuff, everything sort of has gone way faster than what it did when we were kids. Yeah. Pre-internet and all that sort of stuff. Like, you want to learn something, you have to go find a book. Yep. With that specific piece of information you wanted to learn about. For sure. So, how long have you been bartending for? Uh, 89. So... What is that, 31 years? Wow. 31 years, yeah. Have you always been in Vegas? No, but I have been here for 20 years. Where'd you start? Uh, I started in college in upstate New York in a little tiny town called Oswego. State University of New York at Oswego and uh, Rochester, which is my hometown, and bartended in Syracuse. Go Orange. And then uh, I bartended in Manhattan, D.C., um, as as places I lived, of course, I like you, I bartended all over the world doing all kinds of fun stuff, but those were the actual cities that I worked in. And then uh, I uh, got, a, got recruited to be the head bartender of Caesars Palace in 2000, and oh, wow. that brought me to Vegas. So that's what brought you to Vegas originally? Yep. Now, were you heavy in flair, or were you always heavy in the cocktail scene as well? Because I, like, I think there's still a dichotomy between... Flair and cocktail bartenders. Yeah, they don't. They don't oil and water. They don't really get along. Yeah. But it's it's changing. Flair's coming up through craft now. As it kind of saw the writing on the wall a decade ago, that was yeah. going to happen. But um, always both. But you know, the truth is, no one cared about cocktails in the eighties and the early nineties. Um, no one except maybe, I mean, just a handful of people even were. It was on their radar. Uh, and Flair got a lot more media attention. I, I didn't really change anything I did, but what people cared about changed. So what was funny to me was, in and not so much now, but maybe 10 years ago, all the cocktail people would introduce me and say, this is Tobin, he's a Flair bartender, and he likes to play around with cocktails. <laughs> and then all the Flair guys would say, this is Tobin, he's really into cocktails, but he can Flair too. <laughs> and I just would watch it all and go, this is fascinating. Because to me, it was like, no, I'm a bartender. Yeah. Why, why do we need to have these little boxes we throw ourselves in? Why do we need these titles? So, yeah, I, uh, I even, when I was, so I started the Flair Bartenders Association back in 97 or 98. And my business card, it never said president. It always said bartender because I've always identified as a bartender, not a flair tender yeah. or a mixologist or any other kind of title that tries to make you sound more important than you are. I think it's super amazing to be a bartender. I don't think there's any reason not to be proud of being a bartender. I, I always have arguments with people when they bring up the whole argument about mixologist and the terminology. I was like, as a bartender, I think you should be able to do everything. Yeah. So you should be able to you should be able to have a conversation about sports and current affairs. Also, geek out about beer, talk about wine, talk about cocktails. Doing a long pour is flair, but it's also a piece of bartending. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's always just been bartending to me, always. And I, I I recognize obviously that there is a polarization, and there's sort of all these factions that really are about what they really are underneath is saying, hey. I'm passionate about this. Yeah. I want respect for this, and I want to share my passion with you. So I'm going to identify with this. Just like I'm a huge Syracuse Orangeman fan. I like Liverpool Football Club. There's teams that I love, and I'm very passionate about them. And I want people to know that's who I identify with. But I think in our community, there's this. Sometimes we forget. Like we've got a bigger mission here. Yeah. It's still. I think I was listening to your podcast with Morgan Thaler. In fact, where's my Bar book. I think. Oh, it's under one of my coffee table legs where it belongs. It's great at stabilizing it. 
And, you know, one of the things we have to realize is nobody wants their kids to grow up to be a bartender. Yeah. You know, until we've made a dent in that, uh, why are we trying to say, you shouldn't do it this way, my style's yeah. better. So I, I, I kind of like to see bartending in general just kind of be cool with everybody. Like, I'm a bartender. Yeah. That's it. I think with the, the people, um, as you were saying, like, for people to say, oh, I, I don't want my kid to grow up as a bartender, is like, I think that this, uh, these days with how much information is out there, everybody get, a lot of bartenders get stuck in this little, like, thinking thought process that, like, this is the only way you're doing things. Yeah. Like, this is the right way because this is the book I read and this is the way I should do it or this is what I saw and this is what the way I should do it on a YouTube channel. And I think uh, if you read some of Gary Reagan's books back in the day, like, you read those from the very first set of books he put out and you're like, holy dude, like, compared to what the industry standard is now, like, shaking martinis and stuff like that, back in his day, like, everything evolves. And I think there's a lot of people who go, well, Jerry Thomas did it this way. Yeah. Now the Groff does it this way. There's a quote that I'm going to butcher from Thomas Edison that says something, he said something to the effect, or he's quoted as saying, if you think there's only one way to solve a problem, you're wrong. He, <laughs> like, doesn't even mince words. So... <clears throat> Yeah, there's a yeah. It's it's a fascinating time. I mean, it's been amazing to watch this these arcs. Um, you know, to go from. I mean, at least now, most people when you say you're a bartender, I I don't hear as much. Oh, what else do you do? Or what's yeah. your real job? Or are you in college? Maybe because I look like I'm you know 110. But <laughs> but I don't even hear that from other people as well. It's it's become something. Everybody knows about craft cocktails. Yeah. Everyone has seen or heard about someone flipping a bottle. Yeah. Um, these things have become part of the culture and the collective culture of the world. So we've definitely done some good work, and, and it's, it's an exciting time. I can't imagine what it must be like to come up now and have all these resources and opportunities and um, networks and just, I mean, you can... You could learn how to bartend in a craft cocktail bar. I didn't, I'm not saying proficiency yeah. or excellence, but you could learn competency probably in two weeks, yeah. maybe a week. I mean, that was impossible when we started. Yeah. There's no way. You had no resources. Yeah. We were like cavemen rolling around with our I think, stone I, I think I still got like 500 books back home because I'd walk past a bookstore in Australia and I'd be like, I got to go check and see which <laughs> I new, used which to go to books. every yeah. bookstore I could find and go. You always had to go to the cooking section because there yeah. wasn't, then there <laughs> still probably isn't a bar, bar or beverage section. And there was like the first three books I would always find, there was one called The Little Black Book of Shooters, which, you know, fun, but mostly useless. Yeah. Weird, random, made up recipes. There was Mr. Boston's, which yeah. was my first bartending book. And that was about it. Uh, for years and the Mr. Boston's book I remember opening it up and going I was maybe 20 maybe 2 years into bartending and I remember seeing cream de noix uh, egg white I'm like what the fuck this isn't a bartending book this is like a, a pastry chef book I don't get this I didn't understand it but there were recipes in there that I could make and that we did have the ingredients for and so I but there was no history the first book that actually it broke it down that I read, the first two were Michael Jackson's uh, Pocket Bartender's yep. Guide, which I still have uh, over there. And the second one was um, Salvatore Calabrese's uh, Classic Cocktails, which was uh, definitely an inspiration because he very plainly but elegantly and eloquently had a recipe for a classic, explained its origins, and moved on. And I'm like, this is what I need. Yeah. Help me understand why it's made this way, where it came from, and how to make it. Let's move on. There's five sales. There's five words for a sales pitch. 
Yeah, exactly. So you were you came to Vegas in two thousand. Mm-hmm. What was Vegas like in two thousand? Um, just the food and beverage scene was just exploding. Um, it was that was right when the there was yet to be a nightclub in a casino. Um, there was they were attached to casinos like C two K. Uh, there was a few in casinos, but nothing that was moving things forward. And the first one that did was Light Nightclub at the Bellagio. They removed high-limit tables or, or machines to put in a nightclub. And quickly, that changed the entire model in Vegas. They had to put the highest-limit tables in front of the club. Yeah. Because what do yeah. people with lots of money... They're typically skewed towards male, older males with money. They come to Vegas. What do they want to do? They want to stare at skirts going by. Yeah. As... as Primitive and basis as that is, that changed the model, and then the model evolved to <clears throat> instead of food and beverage in the lodging sector and the casino industry being value added, value added amenities, it became important revenue streams. And in fact, I think it was two years ago at MGM, is it MGM? Yeah, because of Hakkasan Nightclub, uh, for the first time in the history of Las Vegas, the the food or the beverage revenues of an outlet outpaced the the game wow. revenues. And that's just unheard of. No. But it's changed the model now. So now Vegas is very serious and has been for a good 15 years about its food and beverage, which is great. Because it didn't used to be at all. Well, because it seems like I hit a precipice was like, who was going to be the first person to like take it seriously and like jump like jump it off the cliff? Yeah. Because it's like everybody gets to a point is like, oh, do we put a little bit more money into a venue? Do we like get out of the chef scene here? Is it insane? Like the amount yeah. of like chef back. Well, now that the great thing is this bartender back venues like Mr. Coco and stuff like that, which yeah, I, I see shows sees it shows a shift as well. On the record, they they bring in a guest bartender every week from all over the country, and they pair him up with a pretty well known recording artist in a private little sort of speakeasy room they have. And yeah, it's it's gone mainstream, and that's great. And it's also because of people like. All, all the bartenders in Vegas 20 years ago, all the people that were basically bartenders, yeah. but are now in leadership positions. So Andrew Pollard, Tony Abuganum, Francesco LaFranconi, Gaston Martinez, Bobby G, um, Livio Loro, it's uh, on and on. And then you've got people who no one knows about, like Marcello Moro, who's got Nora's. Nora's, really Nora started craft cocktails in Vegas 20 years ago. With Bobby G and uh, Anthony Alba and Gaston and everyone there, and now no one really, you know, except the old guard remembers that. Yeah. But the, the strip didn't care about cocktails. The strip started caring about cocktails, with one exception. The strip started caring when they realized the marketing power of it. <clears throat> the exception would be Tony's work at Bellagio, which is just game changing yeah. for sure. So, with the changes in Vegas, and and is it become easier? To, for you for you in your line of work in what way uh, for like obviously you, what what okay let me rephrase it what makes you stay in Vegas uh, mainly I'm here because of where the life I've carved out here I really I really like it it's a it's an interesting city because it takes a lot of flack from everyone which I get yeah. you know I've lived in New York I'm from upstate New York lived in DC People, you know, turn their nose up at Vegas. They kind of laugh at it. It's like their place they go party, but it's it's not to be taken seriously. And we've had a few moments where I've kind of, you know, pulled out the, 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 the drums in the war chest and kind of beaten the drum for Vegas. 
there was the first time there was sort of like a social media poo-pooing on Vegas, I just pointed out, you realize this year we have more world cocktail champions in Vegas than the rest of the world combined. Yeah. Patricia Richards took down like three pieces of major hardware in one yeah. year. Tony, myself, Andrew, like just on and on. We were just crushing it. But the strip wasn't building venues that showcased it. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, at least is it about our industry is, look, we're, we, we know what we are. We're the vodka Red Bull capital of the world. We're the two-foot plastic yard of crappy margarita capital of the world. We know that. And that's why you come here. That doesn't mean we don't have culture. It means it's obfuscated by all of the pandering to the average tourist demo. But Vegas is a really convenient city, and that doesn't sound like that's something to be passionate about, but it's so easy to live here. The weather's great. Yeah. The airport is... I am I get my car right now. I am at the gate in 19 to 21 minutes, any time of day or night, which is amazing. I used to be 11 minutes, moved here. You know, I live on a little lake with yeah. views of the mountain. Um, it's affordable. Um, and it's great for my business. I mean, if you're going to go into acting, you're going to New York or L.A., right? Yeah. If you're going into advertising, you're probably going to New York. You want to be in food and beverage? 20 years ago, food and beverage... Vegas. Yeah. Now, there's lots of pockets of opportunity, but for what I knew I always wanted to do, which was hotels and lodging and scaled beverage, there's we're the number one city in the world for room, number of rooms, development, growth. I mean, it's insane. So, do you do a lot of work here in Vegas, or you do tra- more travel? So it's changed uh, over 20... I've had my consulting for 22 years. It's changed. It's funny. For the first 10 years I lived here, I did no work in Vegas. And I had to travel. And I had to go to the most insanely unheard of markets. <laughs> I developed the first bar I ever designed was in Kathmandu, Nepal. And I got paid a laptop because they didn't want to get hit with the taxes and the tariffs of paying me money. So they wanted to just buy me. And I was like, all right, I could use a new computer. It never got built because war broke out with the Maoists. How did they pick you up in <laughs> Kathmandu in Nepal? Well, 20 years ago... It, uh, to the best of my knowledge, even though I didn't know about it at the time, there were four consulting individuals or companies yeah. in the world. There was Barmetrics, so there was Sean and Jason in Australia. Yeah. There was um, uh, show tenders in Florida, Magic Mike and uh, Tolly and those guys, Bumby. There was um, Steve Olson in New York, and there was myself. Now, there, I'm sure there was someone else, but 20, 22 years yeah. ago, it was very small. And so word got out kind of easily. So I had I had inquiries all over the globe for a while. As the industry grew up, there were you know consultants popped up in every yeah. market. Why would you fly someone around the world and you know spend all this extra money when you think you can get the same thing in in your own city? What sort of bomb was it in Kathmandu? It was supposed to be a nightclub, and I went there after I designed a lot of it. Um, I, did, I mean, I designed the floor plans, the equipment, the concept. I did all these things, and I went there to do a site inspection um, after they were the construction had been going on for supposedly for like four months. And I went up to the pad, and it was a dirt floor. There were two guys sleeping with a sawhorse, a hammer, and a bucket of nails. No floors, no windows, no electrical, no stubbing. Floors hadn't been poured, nothing. And my client was like, what do you think? And I go, are you joking? I'm like, this club is never getting built. She's like, really? This is this is normal for construction here. I'm like, well, this isn't normal for, like, this isn't going to open. Yeah. And um, I realized kind of the the 
absurdity of trying to take first world Western processes yeah. for construction into a third world country that was on the brink of war. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was supposed to be a nightclub. They had enough. They had uh, like a Hilton, a Hyatt, with a really nice bar, and that was the only place in Kathmandu that had a physical, what you and I would call yeah. a bar. Everywhere else, it was like a piece of wood. Uh, I remember I went into this one bar. Bar. It's called a bar. No windows. Dirt floors. Piece of wood. Igloo coolers and one small dorm fridge and eight or nine weird bottles I'd never seen in my life. I don't even know what spirits they were. And I was, I was excited. I was like, oh, what can you make? And he's like, uh, would you like margarita? I'm like, yeah. So he starts making a margarita, and he takes out this tube. It was like cigar-shaped tube of ice and this little tiny saw. And I'm like, oh, my God. I am about to discover the hidden holy grail of ice. Like, I'm going to be in magazine. Like, this is going to change bartending. I'm like, what is he doing? And he starts shaving off these little, like, nickel slices of ice and I'm like what is he doing this is amazing and he drops them in my crappy drink and hands it to me and I'm like I was like oh that's all his ice <laughs> he was just rationing it out because he's got like he's got like three ice cubes that are stuck together that he's shaving into pieces so that was kind of a letdown but what's one of the biggest projects you've done in your life in your career wow uh, I would say for different reasons, I'd say it's a three-way tie between the Greenbrier, Caesar's Palace, and Starbucks. Those are probably the three largest in impact or scope or – well, so Greenbrier would be most impossible job that we succeeded with and kicked ass. Caesar's would be – Caesar's should be a movie. That was a – that was just a – that was my wake-up call to the realities of a union environment and Vegas and politics and power and, and all that kind of stuff. That was a crazy time, and Starbucks was just probably – that's the most gratifying to – I think it was a friend of mine who pointed out at one point, he said, you realize that you personally have helped change the way probably half the world or more drinks coffee for the rest of their lives. And I was what like, was your project with Starbucks in particular? Uh, I can't talk about it, and and it's I. So you know, I got NDA'd, of course, and oh, a lot of IP and stuff like that. I got a text message on a Friday night at eight o'clock at night from my client, who was a vice president of Starbucks, that said, "I just wanted to remind you about the seriousness of your NDA." That's this is coming from my boss, senior vice president of Starbucks, Arthur Rubenstein, who reported only to uh, only to the CEO, only to Howard Schultz. I was like, damn, like, it's like, it's like Friday at eight o'clock at night. She's on the West coast too. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no problem. I can't speak to any specifics. Um, I can speak in generalities. So, and there's one area I can talk about. So I was brought in to help with store the future, yeah. uh, innovation, um, design specifically how to make stores more functional, Increased throughput, better beverage quality globally. Yeah. You know, and, and that was, that's why it was such an amazing project because, you know, everybody who's done a consulting gig, we all can walk into a 10 seat cocktail bar and improve something. Yeah. And, and that's great. Try doing that with a place that has 22,000 stores. What well, was also the thing I think you pointed out in one of the seminars about um, rinses. 
which everybody like has blown. Everybody wants a rinser in their bar and drip trays with a built-in rinser and stuff. And you're like, yeah, you can't do that in California. Exactly, yeah. and that's a it's a health code violation. Yeah. There's and there's so many things like that: supply chain, compliance. Um, even all the international, just just getting things places. Yeah. Not, nobody is going to import equipment from North America over to Asia. They're just going to have it made in China. Yeah. But if you give them the design in China, they're going to take it and rip it off and sell it. Yes. And it, so it, it's very very complex. But yeah, those would be the three biggest: um, Starbucks, Caesars, and, and the Greenbrier. And how did Perlick, how did Perlick come around? I had been designing bars for about eight years, and um, I had been only using Perlick uh, already, which just lined up well. And I got actually contacted by a uh, director of, of PR marketing, and they basically wanted me to go to a trade show and talk about how Perlick made bartenders and owners' lives better or easier. And... Um, I believe, and I've always believed, there are, if you are prepared, you know, chance favors a prepared mind. Yeah. If you are prepared, moments present themselves that you should recognize. And if you recognize them, there's massive opportunity in them. And I recognize that moment. I knew I could just say, sure, I charge this much and I'd be happy to do it. Yeah. But I knew that wasn't what I wanted to do. So I said to her, I would love to come speak about this. I only spec Perlick. I think it's a great company with great equipment, but what you just said isn't true. And she said, what? I said, it doesn't make bartenders' lives easier, and it doesn't, it's not better for owners. And she said, uh, what do you mean? So I spit some hot, fiery truth at her, and she said, would you be willing to say that to some of the executives of the company? I said, I've been waiting 20 years to say that to somebody. <laughs> and, 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 you know... You're usually quite bashful and quiet. Yeah, I am a bashful you, you, you guy. keep your opinions I do keep my opinions very close to my chest, <laughs> close to the best. Um, it, it, you know, it wasn't like... And Perlick already had this idea and initiative. It's not like I put it in their head, but they, they were... They wanted, I think it, what it was, they wanted to, <laughs> the first director of marketing wanted to have me design a insert for a sink, like basically a perf pan. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah, you called the wrong guy. Like, no, nah, <laughs> we're going to do, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And then, so I, I went to Milwaukee and sat down and spoke with them and I kind of explained what goes on with bar design all around the world and where the opportunities are and where the mistakes or the... I don't know what else to call them. You know, in business, you're not you're supposed to talk about opportunities yeah. only, but there's just things being done wrong, and every bartender knows it. Equipment that just is terrible. Not it's not that it's not great; it's terrible. Yeah. And so I just I was myself, and I told him, and that kind of started the relationship. And here we are, seven years later. And how's it going? It's going really well. I always see it because I'm actually doing a seminar in. I didn't mean to laugh like that. It was like, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Evil, James Bond villain laugh, like Blofeld. <laughs> well, welcome, Mr. Bond. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. But no, uh, it, it's going incredibly well. We've got two line extensions now, draft cocktails, and um, it's not a secret. We've already showed it. We're introducing a individual ice vault next to each bartender station for specialty ice nice. ice tempering chamber vermouth cooler like awesome. all the things that have been missing that bartenders have asked for we're working on wow yeah because I'm doing a seminar in a couple uh, next month actually on bar design and yours is cut your, your stuff I'm going to be plugging your stuff up there sweet just because I, I think in Canada especially your stuff once it gets through customs and exchange rates and stuff it's not cheap but 
again, like I think we talked about when we did our big bar design seminar in in New Orleans a couple tales, of years ago, it's yeah. like you spend this much money, you save this, you long term, you're going to make this much money more. Um, you know, it's it's the it is it's my Mugatu moment yeah. in this industry is how much emphasis and energy resources that are spent on people trying to chase after per points of percentage yeah. points in their businesses. And it's something Sean Finter talks about a lot that I, I really respect his point of view in the business. He says things like, why are you chasing these little tiny scraps? Why don't you just go after your peak yeah. volume and maximize your peak volume and maximize? And this is what I talk about with my clients. Let's maximize throughput and flow through. Yeah. You want to right now today, do you want to increase your sales for this year, let's say, by 30 or 40%? What are you going to do? And the room will go quiet. Everyone will go, that. nobody does that. Bullshit. Yeah. Yes, they do. You're looking at the wrong things. Stop trying to shave, you know, shake down all your vendors for yeah. pennies and nickels and stop ignoring your engine. Because a bar, you can, you can dress it up any way you want. A bar is a factory, yeah. plain and simple. It's a production line. Yeah. There isn't a f- successful company in the world that doesn't scrutinize every inch of their production line to make sure that it is the most efficient with the highest throughput possible. That is someone's job is just to look at that. And in the hospitality industry, we're like, ah, it's too expensive or it doesn't matter or have an architect do it. Like, what are you doing? You're, you're building a terrible engine and wondering then why you're not going fast. That's that. I sit there like, am I taking crazy pills? Like that's, I usually find it, uh, always against interior design. It's like, oh, well spending a thousand dollars per light fixture is just completely fine. But you want to go to Costco and buy some ice bins and a couple yep. of like yep. <laughs> a couple of stainless steel bench tops. For oh, the bar. we're so visually handicapped <laughs> in this world. It's well, you know, and, and that's the thing is, that, and this is this is the weirdest part of it for me is that so I do I do interior design, concept development. I've actually been a project manager on you know like ten million dollars in construction, and I design engines and bars and all this good stuff. I love design. I'm a design nerd. I mean. I am a massive fan of some of of the most obscure and the most famous designers out there and the companies that do it. I don't discount their work. Mm -hmm. I just find it ironic the way you do that nobody will bat an eyelash at spending $7,500 on a chandelier that they buy five of, but they'll value engineer and nickel and dime the inarguably most important piece of FF&E that you could buy. The one that produces the products that you sell. The most profitable products. They're not in the kitchen. They're on the bar. And yet, that's the first place to get value engineered. The first place people will balk at spending money. And I always kind of... I do talks and I kind of joke around with architects and designers and food service consultants and, and owners and investors. And I always do this little bit where I say, here's a scene you'll never see in your life. Ooh, hey, honey. Check this place out on Yelp. It's got five stars. It says, love the floors, great <laughs> chandeliers. And I don't want to say that nobody cares, but if you think that the floors or the ceilings are what's the most important part of your hospitality business, then either you've got an empty room, so you have way bigger problems, or nobody cares. No, if, if you're a successful bar restaurant, nobody ever sees the floors except the janitor and the GM. Yeah. And so why are we, and I'm not saying don't have beautiful floors. I'm saying let's balance it out. Let's fix the design build pipeline and put bartender priorities such as ergonomics, efficiencies, throughput, mise en place, 
in its proper place at the front of the pipeline, not as the red redheaded stepchild at yeah. the end. <laughs> yeah, sure, kid. Go get your fancy shakers. We're busy building a building. You know. Did you self teach yourself this, or have you got a background in this? Because uh, I know I'm self taught. Like my background, I actually did landscape design through high school. I started studying architecture in high school. We had the only high school architecture program in the country. Uh, And like the first week, the teacher was like, if you're in this class because you want to draw buildings and because you want to be like Mike Brady on the Brady Bunch, you're in the wrong class. And I'm thinking, check and check. Those are the two reasons I took this class. I'm out. He's like, we're going to be doing, talking about load bearing walls and stress points and there's going to be... Uh, trigonometry and I'm like I'm out so yeah that didn't go anywhere but yeah it's it's mostly self-taught in the field but I've also always been passionate I, you know I'm a graphic designer yeah. I've been a, I've been in design for 25 years and there are parallels the design process never changes yeah. no matter what you're designing it's still about identifying the problem enlarging the problem area adjacency matrices bubble diagrams it's still figuring out use cases and all these other things first before you go, this is what we're doing and drawing it, which I think is the perception of design is I've got an idea for something cool. Let's just do it. And that's, that's not really, I, I had a very good foundation on. Did you have a lot of failures when it came to like your first round of designs? Like when you did Caesars and stuff like that, you were just like, ah, after you opened in like three months in, you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I screwed up. I'm supposed to say yes, or I sound like an arrogant son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, there's always things I look back on and go, oh, it would have been cool if we did that. Or, I, you know, or now that we understand the business flow, it would have been better if we did this. But there's only one time I've designed a bar where I went, oh, no. But we knew that was going to happen. I was in Bismarck, North Dakota, and during the oil boom when there was negative, theoretical negative unemployment, meaning every single able-bodied person who wanted a job, wanted a job, had it. And they were paying, like, this was uh, seven years ago, they were paying $17 an hour for the graveyard McDonald's fryer shift. Everyone in town told us, it'll take you four to five months to staff up your your bar restaurant, even with, like, three bartenders. And they were right. And so while we were designing, I was like, well, if I design on the rooftop bar a three- or four-well station and we don't fill it, then all those people are going to come up to the bar. And once someone's at a bar... If your belly's touching the, the bar counter, not moving laterally. you're expecting to be waited <laughs> yeah. on. And I'm like, that's that's not the game. What's How do I, with a terrible labor pool, uh, uh, that kind of unemployment, and the kind of volume we're going to have, what's the smartest way to design the bar? Well, the smartest way is to have everyone come to you and to build a cockpit. So I basically built this two-station, tiny little cockpit, and we got crushed. We had a 1,000 people a night. So we set up like a mobile bar, and we had plans to expand. But, you know, I, I, I wish... We knew how, a way to get through the first six months, so I could have designed and built a larger bar. Yeah. That's about it. I don't think there's ever been a time because I don't, I don't cram out a bar in like a day or a week. And yeah. and uh, there's a there's a whole industry of professionals that most bartenders don't even know about that exist. They're called food service consultants, FCSIs or FEDs. They are accredited, trained people who design bars, and they do a lot of very important, very difficult, mundane work that no bartender wants to do. You think you want to until you do it. Nobody wants to sit and look at an MEP schematic for a week and figure out the amperage loads for the refrigeration. Like, just saying it sounds like, oh, I don't want to do that. I've got a a project that's uh, LEED certified. 
Oh my god. The whole building has to be oh, certified. Oh, the wow. problem is that the refrigeration and kitchen equipment is there's nothing that's really lead certified. Yeah. And so like it had to come down to how much amperage do you have? Yeah. So stuff yep. because instead of it being lead certified, you have to they go, okay, cut well, it all down. Just cut it all down. Yeah. So um, most of these people are forced to, to knock out you know, just just like a, a brand ambassador that has you know their their database of recipes, and they just change the name <laughs> and just say, hey, so here's your menu. You know, they have to do the same thing, so they just plug and play. They got to put out twenty designs in a week. I'll sp- I've spent as long as a year and a half on one bar. Wow. Now, normally it's only a few weeks, but it's it is always a few weeks yeah. at least. Um, so there there isn't usually a misunderstanding of the project. I take the time to interview everyone to site inspections and what does the market do and um, just everything like so we don't usually miss the mark um, <laughs> knock on wood um, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why the business has grown is because people know you know I'm not the guy you hire because you want a cheap fast bar yeah. I'm the guy you hire because you want the most profitable efficient and hopefully elegant bar in the city or the market or the company you're in what's your plans for 2020 Oh, man. Uh, well, uh, I'm going to stock up so I can get ready for COVID-19 and the coronavirus. No. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really deep into a lot of long-term projects that I, I, I'm at this annoying place in my business, at least as far as media goes, where I can't talk about most of the work I do. Yeah. And 10 years ago, I could because I was doing, you know, Eugene, Oregon and Poughkeepsie, yeah. New York and all this stuff and nobody cared. Uh, I cared, but uh, the, the media didn't. But now I, I work with a lot of large companies, and I'm NDA'd up pretty tightly and can't speak about most of it. But uh, I am excited to introduce some things for bartenders that I think they're going to be really stoked, and hotel operators and owners and independents. Uh, more equipment uh, and some projects, some design projects that I hope will move the entire industry, or I don't know if it'll move the whole industry, but it'll... It'll be the next step that everyone else can get behind so we can move the industry forward. Because yeah. it's been just too long of bartenders being excluded from the design process. So I'm trying to work on things that will help change that. Yeah. Like just systems and that sort of thing? Um, well, uh, let's see. What can I talk about? So one of the things I've been working on is a program to create sort of a brand ambassador similar style program in the equipment world as we have in the spirits world. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean I hope that every bartender ends up being a bar designer by spending two days in a training camp. But I hope what it does is that by the end of the next three years, we have about a dozen, half dozen to a dozen um, current or former, very talented, experienced veteran bartenders who are trained how to actually design bars and not just, you know... Look, if you're designing a bar... And I, my first bar I designed was in Adobe Illustrator. If you're designing bars in Illustrator, Microsoft Word, Photoshop, on a napkin, yeah. on one hand, go, you go, girlfriend, yeah. you go, brother, do it, learn it, get it out there. But I'm not sure it's the best move if you want to move up in bar design to be telling the world you're a bar designer and you're working in Microsoft yeah. Word. It's not just that you're not going to be taken seriously, but you're, in a way, you're kind of disrespecting all the people that have put in the education, the training, the certification, the time to learn properly how to use AutoCAD or Revit or Archicad or any of the software that are actually design, build, construction software. 
So um, I'm hoping to kind of create that education and that piece to sh- teach bartenders. This is where you go to learn this software. Here's courses you can take. Here's how you do your FCSI testing. Here's all you know. Here's where four really talented designers will be speaking. Go talk to them. Yeah. And I have been reaching out to some of the large food service equipment dealers and putting this in their ear. Why don't you have a bartender on staff? Every time I speak, and I I have spoken to thousands of people in the design industry in the last few years. It's my messaging every time is get bar, get a bartender on your team, get a bartender on this project. What's the response to that usually? Uh, common, like there's, it's nodding and common sense. Um, and yet few people have done it. Um, there's a company out of Chicago, well in the Midwest, um, called apex that is extremely forward thinking. And they have a woman named Tori Gotsis who is just on fire and she's a former Chicago bartender who is now a bar designer, consultant, uh, ambassador for Apex. And look, it's an easy conversation because here's what happens. In understanding the landscape of how design works is so important to thinking if you want to design bars. Which, by the way, there's no money in, but <laughs> join me in poverty. <laughs> but um, what happens is... A salesperson, an equipment salesperson goes in or the food service consultant and talks to the project. Well, the architect's in charge. The architect, the interior designer, and the GC have gobbled up all the budget. And, and they, have, they have knowingly pitched something that is massively over budget that the client doesn't know. Even the most savviest investors. Yeah, let's do that. We want a million-dollar chandelier and all these data. And they're like, yeah, this is a $10 million project. That's $40 million worth of FF&E they just yeah. expect at you. But they don't know that. So then they have to go back and value engineer the whole project. Well, the first thing they knock out is the important stuff. Well, if you know all this and you know how to handle this, great. But the food service consultants, that's not – they don't have a dog in that fight. They don't care. Not in a bad way. In a way that they're not – they don't – they can't argue with their client. So they're just going to go, okay, you don't want that, you know, perlick. Tobin Ellis. I just said my own name. (laughs) You don't want that equipment? Fine. We'll just get this cheaper stuff. Well, someone like Tori can go in and say, whoa, 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 like, so you want to make less money. So you want your bartenders to go home sore, tired, run around the bar, poor hospitality, terrible guest yeah. experience, mediocre cocktails that you don't sell a lot of. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Well, she can speak from experience yeah. intelligently and fight for that sale and that design. And that's what I do, and she does it, and and really, that's our function, and that's what a bartender can do. And a bartender can shoot down all the silly ideas that come up, you know, where people want cotton candy stations behind the bar, and it's like, have you ever turned on a cotton candy machine? Yeah. I have. It puts cotton candy all over the room. Did you? Oh, we didn't know that. Well, I do, and I'm here to help you. So that's kind of what I'm excited about trying to do in the next couple of years. But, but yeah, I'm designing some uh, pretty big, cool projects that... Can't wait to talk about that. <laughs> well, thank you very much for sitting down with me. I know you've got a tight schedule. Um, but, uh, yeah, for, actually, last thing I wanted to ask, for all the bartenders out there that want to become consultants, because there's a lot, what's your best piece of advice as the last word from, well, last word from Tobin Ellis that's going to be on record? Stay behind the bar and bartend as long as you can. You will never make easier money or have less stress and have more fun in your entire life. Morgenthaler is on to something. The end goal of all of our careers shouldn't be to get out of the industry that we love. 
honestly, uh, bartend as long as you can. Uh, consulting is a lot less glamorous and a lot harder and a lot... Look, I don't know if anyone listening to this can relate, but one of the reasons I got into bartending is because I never wanted to wear a tie and go into a cubicle and sit in front of a computer all day. Guess what I do all day? <laughs> I don't wear a tie and I'm in my house, but I sit in front of a computer all yeah. day. And I'm not unhappy now, but there, I had those moments like, wait a minute, is this a trap? Like, how did I end up being a suit? Yeah. I never wanted to be a suit. <laughs> so I don't wear shoes and I wear t-shirts to meetings. But yeah, that's it. Is um, Honestly, is, is bartend as long as you can um, and love it. And if you don't love bartending, why would you want to go try to impact so many more bars if you yourself aren't massively passionate and also try to win over people who nine times out of ten you're talking to who don't know anything about bartending and you're trying to win them over in a conversation to spend more money or just to to buy the perlic to Tobin Ellis pieces and, and do, all do, do your homework do your work uh, it, I see this is what I see and I'm a grumpy old man so what do I know I see the majority of attention people seem to be putting on things is on being famous or building a social media following. And I think, no, I know all of the people you would want to have as clients, because these are my friends, colleagues, and my clients, the CFOs, the CEOs, the directors of ops for large companies or very famous places, they all look at that and go, yeah, but where's your work? Yeah. What, what have you done? Like, I, I see that you've got all these followers and you know, you're on social. You're, if you're on Facebook all the time, you're not improving your craft, and you're not working. You know, the people that are doing work don't have time to spend on social media. You know, the CEO of Hilton Hotels isn't on Instagram showing pictures of his coffee from lunch. Yeah. And it's not to be squashing dreams. It's the opposite. If you, if anyone listening right now, you want to build a career in hospitality or beverage consulting, just go out there and work. Do the work. I don't want to say don't build your own marketing, but you know, think about those buckets and how much time, energy, and resources are you putting into the marketing versus the actual work. Because for me, I've, I've really very, very lightly ever marketed myself before and during social media era. It's, I, it's most of my business is word of mouth. And yeah, I'm old, but that's it's no different. Yeah. I've always built it. I've always just people said, well we know you did this job and it was amazing. And so, and that's it. Cause you're only as good as your last job. Just like as a bartender, how good are you making drinks? I don't know. What was the last drink you made? You're only as good as your last drink. It's not about the drink you made for the competition or the magazine or your industry friends. Yeah. It's the person that was kind of rude or you didn't care about how good was that drink? Did you put everything into that drink? That's what people notice. So do the work. That's it. And on that, that was a perfect episode. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I well, hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.